welcome to another episode of On the Issues with Alain Ben-Mir. Today's guest is Dr. Elizabeth Prodromo from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, where she teaches in the Program in International Negotiation and Conflict Resolution and is faculty director of the Initiative on Religion, Law, and Diplomacy. In this episode, Alan and Elizabeth discuss Turkey's efforts to expand its influence in the Middle East and the Balkans, Turkey's relationship with NATO and the West, and the increasing authoritarianism in Turkey under Erdogan's leadership. All right. So anyway, uh, let, let me just begin by um, uh, asking you, know, you uh, your take on what's going on now in Turkey's, in Turkey and what Erdogan is really trying to accomplish. Um, how, how do you see his uh, recent adventures in uh, both abroad as well as at home in his effort in his campaign to solidify his power and, and expand Turkish influence specifically in the Middle East and uh, in the Balkans and you know um, the uh, African uh, some of the African states okay Where, how would you see that going? I think I think Erdogan has been more and more explicit uh, about his ambitions for Turkey, uh, which from his election, his first election in 2002, November, he said um, was to make Turkey a global power, not just a regional power, but a great power and a global power. And I think both in terms of his domestic rhetoric and policy actions, but especially in terms of Turkey's foreign and st- uh, strategic policy, It's a policy that uh, covers three continents, uh, Asia, Europe, and Africa, and is very consistent with using Turkey as the fulcrum, the intersection of these three continents, to make Turkey into what he wants it to be, a a global power. So it's a a geopolitical ambition um, that is global in scope. Yeah. There's a couple of issues here that uh, I want to bring up. And the one is whether or his assets, and not necessarily just economic assets, in terms of uh, Turkey's geopolitical condition today, that is in terms of important geostrategic, I should say, in terms of the population, its location, uh, the energy hub, albeit it doesn't have as yet energy of its own. That is, does his asset, from your perspective, matches, because I don't see it that way, his ambition, that is, will he have enough enough asset to be able to realize his ambition to become the kind of global power that he wants to become. I personally doubt and I have my own reason. What's your take? I think that the key to your question, um, Alon, is whether or not Erdogan is ask, acting from a position of strength or a position of weakness. And although on the face of it, it, it appears that Uh, Turkey's revisionism, territorial revisionism and expansionist ambitions, um, the issues related to energy, uh, geopolitics in the Eastern Med, the invasion of northern Syria. On the face of it, it appears that Turkey's provocation reflects strength. But I think that, um, in fact, what we're seeing is Erdogan himself more and more in a position of domestic political weakness as his allies Political allies have been hived off and have uh, departed over time, but also um, Turkey's, more broadly, Turkey's position of growing isolationism, um, both within um, the NATO alliance uh, and also inside the region. 
um, in inside the Middle East. So I think um, his assets don't correspond, uh, to put it in your terms, his assets don't correspond to his ambitions. But yeah, this, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is exactly my my point. That is definitely. I mean, if you look, he's now projecting some form of power, economic, military, or combination of the two, in 15 different countries, in, um, in Africa, in the Middle East, and, the, and in Europe as well. But what we are looking, and I'm looking at the, the, the extent to which he is succeeding or is being resisted, I see more resistance than success. For example, in the Arab world, he is really not succeeding at all, other than projecting some kind of power in Qatar. Um, in the Balkan, yes, they are accepting some economic aid, some project, but they're really they're eyeing the EU rather than Turkey in the long term. Uh, in, in, uh, in, uh, in Libya and Somalia and other places, he is in competition like Libya with, with, with Russia. As far as Greek, uh, Greece as, as, and, and Cyprus, he's at odds with Israel, with the EU, with the France, with Italy. So although he is trying in all of these areas, but there is significant resistance. The question is, I don't see in the long term, that is, if we, if he, let's say, he would probably surely survive to 1923 and preside over the 100th anniversary of the establishment of the, of the Turkish Republic. But I don't see how that, how would he be able to continue with that I mean, anyway, there's also the fact that he's not going to live forever. My question to you is also, do you think that is, is he able to create, to build the infrastructure, political, economic, uh, strategic, within Turkey itself? So when he departs the political scene, will there be any other uh, individual or a group that will be able to continue with his campaign to reestablish elements of the Ottoman Empire? Alon, I think this is a this is a key question. Um, the difference between what he's able to accomplish now and then um, the structural changes, and frankly, the the damage as well, the regional damage that he would have done, and the damage inside Turkey. And I would like to just emphasize something that you mentioned before. In Turkey's, in terms of Turkey's uh, growing isolationism, if we think about the Eastern Mediterranean Gas Forum. Think about the members of that. You, we have, you know, Jordan, Italy, Greece, Cyprus, Israel, Egypt, the Palestinian Authority. All of them have joined the Eastern Mediterranean Gas Forum. And who is the outlier there? It's Turkey because Turkey. of Turkey's right. challenges to the EEZs and, and um, you know, exploration for, for hydrocarbons, for natural gas. If we think about what's happening inside NATO, um, you know, the the contretemps between Turkey and France in the summer, and the standoff over, um, you know, what happened uh, with uh, the frigate, uh, the Turkish frigate heading to Libya and France's, um, you know, um, intervention. Uh, inside NATO, Turkey finds itself more and more isolated, certainly in terms of its provocations vis-a-vis -vis, um, Greece and also with the United States. I think we can safely claim that, you know, Turkey-U.S. relations are probably at their nadir since Turkey became a member of NATO. And the recent decision, for example, by the United States to um, announce uh, the, the announcement of a regional security training center uh, in Cyprus, a partnership between the U.S., 
uh, State Department and the Foreign Ministry of Cyprus. So in all of these contexts, and in addition, even inside the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, Turkey's efforts to assume the mantle of leadership of the OIC has created great pushback from Saudi Arabia, from the UAE, and others inside the OIC. This reinforces the kind of not only isolationism, but destabilization in many multilateral and uh, alliances and organizations that Turkey's behaviors have caused. So going then to your question, well, what will be the consequences for Turkey? I think um, the repair work that's going to need to be done in a, if we can say a post Erdogan era will be great. And then inside Turkey, I think the repair work will be even greater because Erdogan has fused um, exclusivist Islamist Islamism with um, Turkey-centered nationalism. Right. And, and I think that that is going to uh, create enormous repair work that needs to be done when it comes to um, the civil society and state institutions that reject that kind of authoritarian, even totalitarian approach. And there, I, I think there's cause for great concern uh, because of the damage that has been done. This is exactly, the, I think, one of the most important points, that is to be able to project the kind of power he wants to project and to succeed. is going to have a very strong, solid uh, constituency within Turkey that actually supports him. And I, see, I don't see that. I see that as being eroded, as being eroded in the last several years because of crackdown on the, on the, on the freedom of press, uh, jailing tens of thousands of people, uh, you know, uh, arresting uh, every single suspected or real follower of the Petula um, Gulen movement. So, so you're right when you say in Turkey itself, as if he does not have the strong power base in Turkey to support his adventurism abroad. Well, basically, he is building a house of cards, as I see it. My assessment is basically the house of cards. That's number one. Number two, you have other great power and significant power in the Middle East. For example, take Israel. Well, Israel can tolerate his mischief up to a point. But Israel is by far, in, in militarily speaking, is by far more powerful than, than Turkey. And I'm not saying that there will ever be a war between Turkey and Israel. But he understand also that his, the limitation, because as a result of that, for example, he maintained very powerful trade relations with the state of Israel, albeit he's courting Hamas and the Palestinian Authority at the same time. He cannot afford to alienate Israel, but also up, only up to a point. Uh, he's eyeing uh, Mecca and Medina. Well, uh, Saudi Arabia is not exactly going to sit down and wait for him to come and take over Mecca and Medina. Or Israel for him to come, he's eyeing the, the, the Aska Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. And he, I don't know if he's seen a video that produced showing all of this for the Ottoman at one point fell under their control. He's trying now to grab again, at least in, in, you know, talking about it. So if, if given this reality, so as I said earlier, I think to, to me this seemed to be like a house of cards and in one form or another is going to collapse. Do you have a sense, A, if, if you agree with me, do you have a sense what might or might not precipitate the implosion? Because I see eventually an implosion, specifically because Turkey also does not have the economic prowess 
that is necessary to sustain that kind of aggressive foreign policy and intervention in the affairs of so many different countries and where sometimes required economic help, which he does not have that kind of economic uh, uh, kind of money needed to be able to uh, continue the kind of project he's undertaken, for example, uh, in the Balkans uh, and, and elsewhere in Somalia and, and elsewhere. What, what's your take on that? I think uh, that's a great question. Well, I think we could look at sort of either exogenous or endogenous factors that could produce, um, you know, the kind of radical change you're talking about, implosion. I'm not, I'm, I'm not quite convinced that there will be a, um, you know, a dramatic implosion as much as a an accelerated uh, transformation or change. And I think, um, in terms of the exogenous factors, that kind of accelerated change, and by that I mean, um, you know, really. Um, a demonstrated change in Erdogan's foreign policy behavior that might come, for example, from um, you know uh, NATO action. And although there's no formula, and we all know this, there's no formula for suspending uh, you know a NATO, a member state of NATO, uh, because it's there's not a formula. It doesn't mean that that might not happen. Um, so I, I guess what I'm getting at is unless there are costs and consequences to Turkey's behavior, there won't be a, any significant change. So that might come, let's say, from, you know, a NATO suspension until, you know, certain benchmarks and, and changes are, you know, are demonstrated by Turkey. The S-400s, for example, um, although Turkey says they've not activated them, that doesn't mean that they won't. Um, the an, another exogenous, you know, uh, change or action that might produce a change in Turkey is finally the U.S. implementing the CATSA sanctions, the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act on Turkey regarding the S-400s. Um, something else that might happen, you know, uh, endogenously might uh, have to do with um, Turkey's economic situation and the need to go to the IMF for um, a bailout, um, you know, a bailout agreement. And here again, that can be, you know, uh, conditioned, let's say, either formally or informally uh, on a change in, in Turkey's behaviors in this regard. Um, but I, I, I don't think that, um, I think minus any major action by Turkey's partners in NATO, um, I, I don't see in the short term a, a major shift in, in the behavior of Erdogan. Um, after all, I mean, the EU has all but, you know, formally suspended, well, in fact, they have suspended Turkey's accession pathway. Um, and that's produced no measurable change. And so I think the two things that, you know, really can, you know, uh, be leveraged vis-a-vis -vis Turkey to produce a change are, you know, these kinds of sanctions um, and Turkey's position inside NATO. Um, I don't see... A, from inside Turkey, a major shift, and this goes back to your question, sort of, who who are the who are the meaningful opposition leaders to to Erdogan, um, either in the CHP or in the Kurdish party, the DHP. He has you know jailed um, Demir Demirtas for for years now. So I don't think there there is either um, a kind of unified opposition coalition to Erdogan that could produce a major political shift inside Turkey. And so it would have to come from outside and it would be related to Turkey's 
um, economic condition or to Turkey's uh, position inside of um, the Western alliance. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I agree with you. I mean, as far as the, the potential or, or the prospect of integration to the U.S., there is a growing tension between NATO members and Turkey going back now a number of years. And uh, my, my understanding, it's a member of the EU, basically are saying, um, yes, we don't have the mechanism to kick out a member of NATO, but that does not suggest, I mean, that, they, that because of that, we can be stuck to the end of times with, with Turkey. Because Turkey not only violating, but becoming much closer, having relationship with Russia, which is which is determined and it is working diligently trying to weaken NATO, weaken the European Union. And he's becoming ever more friendly with, with Putin. So he's actually acting against the, the strategic, the, the political strategic interest of the European as well as the United States. The question is here, I see at one point or another, post-Trump, I mean, basically, I think if Erdogan now has continued to uh, throw his weight around because uh, the United States pretty much allowed him to do that. But if, they, if you have to a different kind of administration, say the Biden administration, I don't think Erdogan will be able to get away with the, with the thing that he's getting, getting away with at this, at this point. So, that, that, so we're not talking now a matter of years. Potentially, this can happen next year. Uh, and in talking to Turks, you know, they really, they, they told me, we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, he's throwing all of these uh, uh, um, adventures all over and, and his uh, growing uh, authoritarian rule in, in Turkey. He's basically uh, a dictator par excellence. And then the, the, there is no strong foundation in Turkey to continue to support this kind of adventurism. So I see that when I call it uh, implosion, I don't mean necessarily that we, uh, Turkey is going to to to, to, be, to, to destroy itself, but it's not that will not have the capacity. Once he departs, does not have that capacity at all to project itself in, by by any stretch the way Erdogan is trying to do so. And uh, by and in the interim, he, he managed, of course, to alienate the EU, to alienate NATO members, just the same to alienate just about every single Arab state with the exception perhaps of Libya and Qatar for the time being, and maybe Somalia, uh, and he's alienating the Israelis. So he is not exactly building the kind of coalition that can that allow him to realize his dream uh, uh, and become the, the Ataturk, the new Ataturk of Turkey. That's how I see it moving in that direction. And so again, I want to get your, your, uh, your take on it. I think that I agree with you, uh, Alon. I think that my um, hesitation uh, comes from the fact that um, it may well be that if there is a Biden administration, um, that the United States will deal differently with Turkey than it has until now. Um, and it may well be that the political forces on the ground in Turkey are more open to um to cooperation and respect for rule of law and human rights and for, for sovereignty. However, uh, I think uh, the, the, the real challenge comes from the fact that although the Erdogan government and AKP has thrown 
um, has has uh, the the Erdogan government, the AKP, have thrown into sharp relief deep historical trends inside Turkey that predate the AKP. And I think those deep historical trends, namely a disregard for the sovereignty of neighbors, Turkey's neighbors, um, and a disregard for the values that we associate with rule of law and for Turkey's international treaty obligations, those predate the AKP's arrival on the scene in 2002. And and I think that that is the, the real issue here, that if, you know, the, 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 the goal and the hope, certainly for Turkey's citizens, but also for Turkey's, you know, alliance partners and its neighbors, is that, uh, you know, a, a post-Erdogan Turkey will be, or even an Erdogan Turkey, but with a different administration in Washington, will be one that, number one, respects the sovereignty of Turkey's neighbors, and number two, respects, um, you know, international law and um, human rights. There's going to be a lot of work to be done because these, these um, you know, policies are ones that, ha- Turkey's gotten a free pass for, let me put it in the vernacular, Turkey's gotten a free pass for a long time. Um, you know, Turkey invaded and occupied Cyprus since 1974, well before, you know, this was under so-called secularist Kemalist governments. Turkey violated at will the, you know, the uh, sovereignty of its Iraqi neighbor well before the arrival of Erdogan. Um, and Turkey's unwillingness, for example, to um, recognize, you know, the EEZs and the Eastern Med is is part of a, you know, pre-Erdogan uh, unwillingness to respect the sovereignty, the maritime and the um, the um, air sovereignty of Greece that, again, predates uh, Erdogan. So uh, where I'm going with this is that um, to say that Erdogan isn't the only problem. There's a, a, a deep-seated historical problem in terms of tur- the Turkish state's willingness to accept the rules of international law and the foundational principle of sovereignty. And so I think uh, if, if we're talking about a, a Biden administration, a Biden administration will have to, you know, rethink, um, you know, the, the rules of engagement with Washington and Ankara and recognize that the problems aren't simply problems of Erdogan and the AKP. They are issues related to how the Turkish state accepts and plays by or doesn't play by the rules of, of um, the international arena. Yeah, I mean, I, no, I, I agree with you. And I'm, of course, I'm hopeful, <laughs> needless to say, that uh, Trump is not re-elected and the Biden administration was going to have to look at U.S.-Turkish relations in a different way, but not limiting it to the bilateral relations between the two countries, but in terms of what the United States ought to be demanding from Turkey to to do in order to, because what I, what I see is happening, his intervention, interference, various entries, which is contrary to the so-called zero problem with neighbors. In fact, he's got problems with just about every neighbor. Right, right, right. Uh, so so the, the new, new American administration is going to have to sort of draw the line, uh, albeit some of the lines being drawn by the respective countries in the region. Like right. Saudi, like the Egyptian, like Israel, like like France and others, basically tell them, you know, we're going to stop you. You're not, you're not going to have a free pass 
to do pretty much whatever, whatever you want to do. So he's already getting these signals. And he's not, uh, he doesn't really have, I mean, if you look at the, every election, he hardly garner 50% of the, of the Turkish vote. In fact, he's always less than 50%. Now, having been alienating the Turkish population to the extent that he has, I'm not sure, I mean, given the election, for example, the local election, Istanbul, Ankara, and others, where he basically lost badly. I'm not sure there's going to be a new election come 2023 that everyone's going to necessarily be re-elected, unless, of course, he rigged the whole election which he's capable of doing. So I'm seeing, what I'm saying is, I see a period of instability for, you know, in Turkey itself. I see a, a period of um, challenges, many challenges he'll be facing that has not abroad, that he hasn't faced as yet. Be that with Greece, be that with uh, about Cyprus, uh, be that with um, Egypt, for that matter. So, notwithstanding what appeared to be his "quote unquote" successes, it is that's what I call it. What I say is his house of cards because it does not have the foundation on which to build on it and sustain it. So, all of what he's doing, to my, from my perspective, is not sustainable. I, I I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, I think there's no question about that either in terms of, you know, what Turkey's doing in terms of its foreign policy or domestic policy. And I think, you know, we we tend to focus a lot on the foreign policy because it's far more visible uh, in terms of, you know, uh, provocation and revisionism. But, uh, you know, the, the, the shift towards hard authoritarianism and almost a kind of totalitarian party state under Erdogan, um, you know, the absolute, you know, control and straitjacket over, you know, freedom of the press, freedom of speech and the public sphere, uh, the, you know, arbitrary detention, arrest and, you know, prolonged detention of people without due process. I mean, these are, you know, signals of a shift in a direction of totalitarianism, the elevation of Erdogan, much as we saw, you know, with with Ataturk, but the elevation of Erdogan as the, you know, kind of, uh, you know, emblematic symbol of of Turkey itself, the fusion of person, party, and state. Um, these have suffocated, um, you know, the, um, you know, civil society uh, and competitive party politics in Turkey. So. You know, although, again, as I said, I'm not sanguine about, uh, you know, a sudden flowering of democracy in, in a Turkey that, you know, has always had, you know, elements of authoritarianism. I think we see, look, with the formation of the new party by Ali Babacan, uh, you know, the, the formation of the new party by Daoudoglu, um, the, you know, the recognition on the part of the CHP, the Republican People's Party, and the showing, as you said, in, you know, the elections in uh, Istanbul and Ankara. There's, you know, enormous popular and political concern about this move in the direction beyond authoritarianism towards totalitarianism. So hopefully that kind of dissatisfaction with the political and social forces produces, um, you know, a critical mass that, um, you know, that pushes the country in a, a direction very different than the one we've seen under Erdogan. And that's where I think, you know, external leverage and support for those voices and actions that, um, you know, are looking for a release of this suffocation will be very important. Yeah, I want to just, you know, go back to the EU 
EU-Turkish uh, relations and NATO-Turkish relations. What we have here, is Erdogan has been very successful in, I would say, in blackmailing, blackmailing the European community because of a number. And the geostrategically, Turkey is important, has the largest, second largest military within NATO. It is the energy hub, albeit um, much of this uh, energy goes to Europe through, through Turkey. And of course, he has the refugees, Syrian refugees. He's constantly threatening the European Union community. If you don't do ABC and you are going to open the floodgates of, 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 of refugees to come to. So he's got these uh, quote unquote assets that he's using to blackmail the European community. On that, and then my feeling is that the EU and NATO have thus far done very little, if anything, to try to put the brakes on his uh, on his uh, misadventure. And uh, maybe in part because of, of concern they have over the refugees, refugees and others. But on the other hand, you know, he's violating not just, uh, for example, not just buying the S-400 air defense system from Russia, which is really... Um, totally incompatible with, with, with NATO's forces. But he's also violating the, the, the letters of NATO Charter. If you look at NATO Charter, members of NATO required uh, must be democratic, must adhere to human rights. So he is violating the NATO Charter, other, the Charter, other than just buying weapons from Russia, day in and day out. And yet, the EU has, been, has done practically nothing. To, to, to say to stop him and say, look, we are not going to tolerate that and are constantly concerned about what he might do in retaliation. Don't you think the EU ought to reawaken now and say enough is enough? We're not gonna... And France, I think, I think Macron is doing well by actually speaking out and he said it openly. We've got to stop it. We've got to stop him. We can no longer allow him to continue to do what he's doing and do so with impunity. But I don't see the German and I don't see the British in particular to join forces with Iran to put them in this Yeah, these are uh, these are the um, you know the challenges of kind of um, nuanced foreign policy, I guess. And I, I think, as a general rule, uh, what we have seen over time, and again, this predates Erdogan, but has continued until now, is that. Um, both the European Union and NATO has engaged with Turkey, but the EU in particular, um, based on a policy in, of incentives, hoping that incentivization would produce change. And although certainly, you know, Turkey's negotiations for EU membership and its closing of chapters have produced um, or had produced at least a convergence um, to, you know, the, the standards of the EU uh, communautaire on, you know, um, financial and economic issues and on administrative issues. Uh, the fact of the matter is that on foundational questions uh, that um, bring together interests and values in the European Union, Turkey remained an outlier. So, I mean, let's start from the basic fact that Turkey, the Turkish military occupies the territory of an EU member state. Um, whatever one's views on you know, the Cyprus issue may be, the fact of the matter is that according to, you know, international law, 
Turkey occupies 37% of the territory of an EU member state. And inside that occupied territory, where Turkey is the competent authority, the Turkish military has presided over um, you know, ethno-religious cleansing and also over the um, you know, the destruction of tangible and intangible cultural heritage, not only of um, Cyprus and the Republic of Cyprus, but of an EU member state. So to continue to move forward on a policy of incentivizing where there are no changes, measurable changes in Turkey's behavior, I think has, you know, been a, a mistake in the way that the EU has um, engaged with Turkey. And then, you know, on, on issues, again, related to refugees, without a doubt, Turkey has absorbed, you know, millions of refugees. It's hard to know the real number. You know, the, the recorded number that we, we hear over and over again is 3.5 to 3.6 million refugees. It may well be more. But yes, Turkey has absorbed refugees, but they have absorbed, they have weaponized refugees. That's um, exactly the point. In, yeah, they have yeah. weaponized. In their in their engagement with Europe, and so, um, you know, then one gets to the question: Well, so what do you do? Well, I think, you know, you determine measurable benchmarks and compliance with those benchmarks, and so incentives need to be matched by compliance. And until now, it's been all about incentives. And then finally, just to go back to your um, your point about NATO, if one looks again at the you know the um, NATO charter. Parties, are, you know, or signatories to the charter are, you know, committed to safeguarding, you know, the freedom and common heritage, the civilization of the peoples or the member states that are founded on principles of, you know, democracy and rule of law and individual liberty. And, you know, again, without a doubt, Turkey violates those principles. So then we get to the question, of, again, what's to be done? And I think there are several things that can be done. You know, again, the you know, the uh, use of CATSA sanctions, uh, the investigation, for example, along of the Turkey-French uh, standoff in June, um, that has been relegated to an internal discussion. Uh, it's seen as too, pro um, you know, provocative for NATO to, uh, to release the finding of that investigation. These are all face-saving measures that don't help NATO. They incentivize Turkey, but they don't produce a change. So I think it's again time to use, you know, the um, you know a more transparent and public set of policies and measurable compliance requirements before continuing to incentivize and seeing that the incentives don't produce a change in behavior. Yeah, but uh, you know, I mean, as far as I, I can see, I don't expect Erdogan to change his behavior. Not 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 any time soon. In fact, if ever, I mean, he's already charted a, a road, a map, where he's going, and in the end, I, in the end of the day, I think he's gonna get. He's not going to get to his destination uh, because of what we, we mentioned earlier. And the EU, the United States, like he said, I'm saying again, I ought to look again at the bilateral relations with Turkey. And, and make a determination. That is, if Turkey wants to become a constructive player on the global scene, it's going to have to comply with various rules and regulations in terms of international relations and not uh, violate the sovereignty of other countries with, with basically with impunity. 
Uh, Alon, can I can I ask or ask a question, but also sort of interject here too? I mean, I think you know the the discussion oftentimes in Brussels and Washington um, turns around the, the following: Well, who, we don't want to lose Turkey, and we don't want Turkey to turn away from the from the Western alliance and from you know its EU relationship and its its NATO member states. The fact of the matter is Turkey already has turned away. And it's exactly. it's turned away in many ways voluntarily. Turkey has not been pushed away. So I think you know that kind of language and that sort of analytic framework is is fundamentally a mistake. Um, and and the, the the second part is who, where, and to whom would Turkey turn? And here I think we uh, you know have some very recent you know data that that suggests that you know Turkey doesn't have much to turn to. I mean, Secretary Pompeo, um, you know, said earlier this week that um, the, you know, the normalization of UAE-Israel relations, which, you know, we're beginning to see will now include Bahrain and Oman, and eventually most most informed analysts say, you know, conclude even Saudi Arabia. The normalization has left only two countries in the region that, you know, vocally opposed it. Those two countries, Iran and Turkey, and these are, you know, Secretary Pompeo's words. And 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 I think that to think that Turkey would put all of its eggs in the Iran basket, at the expense of its long-standing relationships, um, we know that that's not a, a sustainable option for Turkey. And even yeah. in terms of the Turkey-Russia relationship, which has been highly, you know, pragmatic. Turkey and Russia are, have, you know, historic enmity dating back centuries. And these relate to, again, foundational issues of, of sovereignty for Turkey. So to assume that, you know, the, the Erdogan-Putin relationship is anything other than, you know, pragmatic disruption and therefore that, you know, the U.S. or the EU can't afford to risk losing Turkey to Russia is not a sustainable set of assumptions. So no, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's not not only sustainable. When I speak to some European, well, basically what they're saying is exactly what you just mentioned. Yeah, you know, Turkey's relation with with, with with Russia or Putin versus Erdogan is, is pragmatic. But uh, even Erdogan himself, when he thinks in a long term, he does not see a future uh, alignment with Russia, something that can last that is going to be sustained, that's going to be beneficial. Because he understands Russia's limitation. And so he's basically, he's now trying, he's dancing in two, in two weddings. Uh, he does <laughs> yeah. not want to abandon the, the, the EU or NATO, and he still wants to be developing a closer relation with, with Putin, but that is more tactical than strategic. And that's that's what members of the, you know, parliamentarian tell me, when I go to Brussels, this is so what they are doing. What they are saying: if we are not punishing now uh, Turkey, it is because we know that in the final analysis, Turkey does not have any future with Russia, and that and, and Erdogan is not uh, a permanent fixture. At one point or another, he's going to depart the political scene, and then we do not want to do something too drastic against Turkey now because. Sooner or later, the day will come when Turkey, as a, as a as a state, will, re will recognize that its fate, its future, rests with the West rather than with Russia. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think and the other, you know, kind of question that people raise is whether or not, you know, Turkey's distancing or alienation from, uh, you know, from its NATO member allies would lead Turkey to turn towards China. And, you know, we do know that amongst the OIC member states, it's really only been, interestingly enough, it's only been Turkey that has been vocal in standing up to China's repression uh, against um, uh, against the Uyghur Muslims. But it's interesting to note that after taking that kind of a public stand more recently that, you know, Turkey has quieted its its criticism and it's turned towards China in terms of um, its economic needs. So I think there was a, um, you know, a, a People's Bank of China swap for Turkish lira recently, something at, you know, I think it was at the level of about $400 million. And, you know, there are, you know, discussions about, um, you know, expanding Turkey-China trade. But here again, it, one has to ask the question, is China a viable alternative for Turkey to oh, no, its Western I mean, alliance partners? And I think the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely um, not. Uh, you know, China you know, trying to, has, been, has been injecting itself into the Middle East for a variety of reasons, including its needs for oil from, from uh, Iran and others. Uh, I mean, uh, China does not provide any alternative to, to Turkey in the long term under any circumstances. Yeah. So gonna... Exactly. And, and and given Turkey's, you know, given Ankara's, you know, longstanding historical concerns about its own territorial integrity and sovereignty, uh, you know, China's Belt Road Initiative is being recognized now by many as, you know, a different um a different approach to um, compromising the sovereignty of of countries with which it's dealing, and uh, Turkey Turkey recognizes that I think as well. So this gets us back to one of the leverage points that uh, that Washington or Brussels has in dealing with Turkey, and that's Turkey's economic need. Um, you know, Turkey would not want to become economically dependent on Beijing, um, which means that. Uh, you know, it needs to turn towards its traditional partners and its historical partners uh, in in the Western alliance for um, economic assistance. And that's where, again, we go back to incentives and compliance or conditionality, a, a term that's far less palatable, I guess, to Ankara or, or any country. But, you know, to, to link uh, economic assistance to uh, measurable benchmarks when it comes to um, to foreign policy and when it comes to human rights issues. And I think that's where the game has to be played. No, I, I fully agree with you. I mean, some say the discovery of some gas, major reservoir of gas in the Black Sea is giving now uh, Erdogan a hope that he sooner or later will, have, will, will be completely independent financially once they start to exploit that, these reservoirs. But this is again. This is a long, long term. It's going to ever happen. Uh, I think. Uh, I want to thank you. I think uh, we can end up on this wonderful note that you have indicated, and um, we will uh, continue one of these days. We'll have another discussion. See, perhaps after the election, we'll see if there's going to be any d different approach that the United States might take versus Turkey, if hopefully. Biden is, uh, is elected as a president, and hopefully the EU will be able to have a little bit more courage. And like you just said, you know, incentive will have to meet certain benchmarks. 
and this, the sooner they realize they have to do so, the better off you will be, the better off Turkey will be, the better off all these countries that are affected directly and indirectly by what everyone is doing will be better off. I, let's let's hope for let's hope for a change in in every way. And I think that you know the real sort of rational assessment on the part of Ankara will be whether or not you know the growing isolation um, and the consequent um, political, military, but also economic costs of that isolation will be enough to convince uh, you know political party elites, political elites in Turkey that um, they need to begin playing by the rules of the game. But there it's it's up to the United States and, and, and other NATO member states to, um, you know, stand for those values and those rules rather than to compromise them in terms of how they engage with Turkey moving forward. Exactly right. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much again for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And um, we'll be in touch soon. It's a pleasure to, to talk with you, Alon, and to be part of your podcast. Uh, and I'm a great admirer of, of your podcasts, which are incredibly informative um, and insightful. So thank you for inviting me to talk with you. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page. And stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.